So if you want to open up in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3, we're going to cover verses 1 through 11 today. We're in the book of Judges chapter 3. We're going to cover verses 1 through 11. We're just going to read the first two verses to begin with. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word. It says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that He might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks and praise to You for this time that we have in Your Word. I ask and pray that You help me to preach that which You've given me to set forth, that You would use it for good and to the glory of Your name. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We ask and pray that You, O Lord, would be glorified here and continue to build Your kingdom within the heart and mind of each one gathered. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be seated. The title of my sermon this morning is Pacifism and Warfare. And I'm going to be focusing in on warfare, just making a brief reference to the matter of pacifism. This passage here in verses 1 and 2 reveal yet again that God is not a pacifist. I mean, he's talking about his people knowing how to war. This passage here reminds us yet again that pacifism is a heresy. Because pacifism is contrary to the nature of God and contrary to God's very person. It is a heresy, therefore. Exodus 15.3 says plainly, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a man of war. And the Lord does in fact war. For example, Psalm 7 Verses 11 through 13 states, God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, if the wicked does not turn back from his evil, he, talking about the Lord, will sharpen his sword. He, talking about the Lord, bends his bow and makes it ready. He, talking about the Lord, also prepares for himself instruments of death. He, talking about the Lord, makes his arrows into fiery shafts. And the scriptures are full of texts which reveal that God is not a pacifist, that he is a man of war. From Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures reveal that the Lord wars in the earth. And here we see the scripture reveals that the Lord allowed these pagan peoples to remain in the land he had given to his people for two reasons. Verse 1, now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. There's the first reason. He left them there to test Israel, to see if they were true to him or they would rebel against him and follow after the pagan people's gods. They're false gods. And second, it goes on to say, 
that the reason he left them there. He says, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war. At least those who had not formerly known it. So this is the second reason. He left them there, number one, so he could test his people. Will they be true to me or not in the midst of these pagan people around them? Or will they follow after their gods? And second, so that the generations of children of Israel might be taught to know to war. God wanted them to know war. And notice who he wanted taught to war. It says at the end of verse 1 there, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. In other words, it's the next generation. Verse 2 says, this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. He wanted the next generation to learn how to war. These pagan nations, these pagan peoples, afforded the Israelites practical experience in warfare. They needed to learn how to fight. They would one day confront major powers like Egypt and Assyria rather than just the Hivites, the Hittites, the Moabites, and them guys. Practical experience in warfare was needed. The pagans would provide the opportunity for warfare and the previous generation was to teach the younger generation warfare. The previous generation was to teach the younger subsequent generation warfare. Notice who would lead the Israelites against the oppressor here in chapter 3. Look at verse 9. It says, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. It says it was Othniel, Caleb's younger brother. He would be a man who would know something about warfare. He surely was an older man at this time. And surely he taught the younger men warfare. Our generation, your generation, needs to learn warfare and teach the next generation warfare. Massively important. Now the fighting spoken of here was of a physical nature. But even in the New Testament we see our Lord is a man of war. He calls us to war for the souls of men. And this brings us into confrontation with the idols of the culture. It brings us into conflict with the evil ideologies of the culture and nation. And it brings us into contention with actual flesh and blood wicked men. And so the New Testament refers to us as soldiers. In Philippians 2.25 and Philemon, Philemon verse 2, the Apostle Paul refers to other believers as his, quote-unquote, fellow soldiers. 
In 2 Timothy 2.3, Paul writes, quote, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 6, verses 14 through 17, Scripture describes our armor to that of a soldier. It says, quote, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, unquote. That's all analogous to a soldier at that time in Rome. My point is the Lord is a man of war, that he does war, that we are soldiers and we are to war. Our warfare is different than Israel's. Their warfare was primarily physical, while ours is primarily spiritual. Look what Paul said just prior to our last verse in Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. Look what he said in verses 11 and 12 just before that. He said, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Unquote. Our warfare is primarily spiritual. But understand this. Our warfare is primarily spiritual, but understand this. Let me insert this and then get back to my main point. This does not mean there isn't a time for Christian men to war physically. What is said here in Ephesians does not mean there isn't a time for Christian men to war physically. Spiritual warfare is fleshed out in time and space. Understand that? History shows a long list of Christian men who understood that arms are needed at times. That is where the whole just war theory originated from. The early churchmen constructed the just war theory. There is a time Christian men must take up arms. The Scottish Covenanters, the Huguenots, the Hussites, they all took up arms. And Christianity has its own censorship, doesn't it? Everyone knows about John Huss and how he was martyred at the stake. Every Christian knows that story. But how many Christians know that the Hussites then fought a 15-year war against the Holy Roman Empire and won their freedom from Roman Catholicism 100 years before the rest of the Europe did? Like nobody in Christianity knows that. Because Christianity practices its own form of censorship. It wants to remove those things. Why? Because Christianity has often been under the domain of kings and rulers, and so what they want to do at that point is make sure everybody's just in subjection to them and has no other thoughts otherwise. The Scottish Covenanters, the Huguenots, the Hussites all took up arms, and we have examples all the way back to the early church. As I said before, Christianity is its own form of censorship. Not everyone was martyred by being submissive to the tyrants. Some wrongly believe that Luther opposed the use of force and taught complete submission to the state. 
That is false. The Torgau Gutachten of October 1531, and I don't know if I pronounce that right, I don't speak German. When Claire and I went over to Europe, we were at Italy, and there the language is much different. Buongiorno. And then you get down to Germany. We went from Italy to Germany. And when we get to Germany, Guten Tag. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> but in October of 1531, the Torgau, Guten Tag 10, was signed by Luther, Jonas, Melanchthon, and Spalatin, which recognized the legitimacy of armed resistance if it were carried out in accordance with the provisions of the imperial law, Luther wanted the fighting to be done lawfully by the lesser magistrates, by the people joining to the electors and princes, because they saw there was a huge threat from the Holy Roman Emperor to crush and end the Protestant Reformation. Luther wanted the people joining with the lesser magistrates, he wanted it that way because he had seen how peasant revolts go. There is lawlessness in a peasant revolt, and it usually doesn't go good for the peasants. My point is, Luther did not oppose the use of arms when society had debauched itself to such an awful condition that immorality abounded or the true faith was under attack. Theodore Beza transmitted, you all know who he was, heir apparent to John Calvin, Theodore Beza transmitted the crucial idea about the rights of lesser magistrates to resist by force of arms to the French Huguenots at precisely the time they were casting about for legitimate reasons to oppose royal persecution. John Knox, of course, went even further and showed that the people themselves have a right and duty to take up arms against lawless government officials if there are no worthwhile lesser magistrates to rally with. He viewed this as being under family government and self-government. And I agree with him wholly. In Magdeburg, they took up arms to protect their way of life, their homes, their families, their faith. Their writings are clear on that. The Lord is not a pacifist. The Bible does not teach pacifism. We are not pacifists. Pacifism is a heresy. Now understand and please note this. Understand, and please note this, God's kingdom does not expand in the earth through military conquest. doesn't expand through political parties. doesn't expand through military conquest. It expands through the faithful declaration of his law, word, and gospel, and through the vehicle of the church. That's how his kingdom expands in the earth. But that does not mean there are not times when Christian men must take up arms. And I believe we are quickly approaching that time for Christian men in our day. So let me get back to the primary warfare the Lord calls us to in our day, in our lives here in New Testament. My point is... The Lord is a man of war, that he does war, that we are soldiers and we are to war, and each generation must learn and be taught warfare. But most Christian young people today, however, know nothing 
of warfare. And that is because the previous generation, my generation, overwhelmingly have not warred with wicked men or with wicked ideologies. They have never confronted the idols, evils, and tyrants of our culture and nation. And because they themselves, we ourselves, my generation, have not fought, they are incapable of teaching the young Christians to fight. I've been fighting for 30 plus years regarding these things. I'm the butt of numerous ministers, the flowery kind, who say that isn't how Christians behave. That isn't how Christians talk. No, I guess Christians just stand by, aid and abet wicked men and evil, rather than confront it, right? Because my generation has not fought, they are incapable of teaching the young Christians to fight, to war for Christ in the earth properly, in wielding the sword of the Spirit, His Word, in confronting the tyrants, the evils and the idols of our culture. They're incapable of teaching it. Because they have no experience. They've spent their whole lives creating this Jesus in the air. Mr. Rogers, who comes down with his little cardigan sweater and says, Can I be your neighbor? You know what the testimony is? The majority of Christians I have tell me my pastor's so soft. He's such a gentle man. I love him so much. It's an evil. It's wicked what they've done with American Christianity. Not only have they not taught them warfare, not only has my generation not taught the younger generation warfare, by and large... I see again and again the young ministers and Christians of our day aiding and abetting wicked men. For example, a young minister posted yesterday, quote, Congratulations, President and Vice President-elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on your election victory. As we prayed for President Trump, believers, let us pray for Biden and Harris and let us show them honor as Scripture commands. Understand, this is common among these young churchmen. He is congratulating them, first off, when the result isn't even in. When there is much evidence of corruption through mail-in and harvest balloting, don't think for a moment this fight is over. Churchmen like this want you to believe it's over. They're a useful tool. They're dupes of the leftist horde in order to make sure that everyone gets in line and believes it's over. They want to win through the media. They don't want those ballots looked at. They don't want them examined. They want everyone to go along with the fiction, just like all the dopes in America have gone along with the fiction of COVID. They want them all to go along with this fiction that Biden and Harris have won. Just so everyone is clear, networks don't call elections. And if you think this is or has been a legitimate election process we have watched over the last five days, you are blind. Regarding his matter of praying for Biden and Harris, I will pray. I will pray imprecations. I will pray imprecatory prayers because I know they are evil. They have made it clear that they are evil and that they intend to unleash their evil through the force of the state upon the entire nation. 
Isn't it funny how every time someone like Trump wins, all they can talk about is the division they bring. But as soon as a Democrat gains power again, it's all about unity and crossing, you know, the aisle and how we all got to get along. I've wa- I'm 60. I've watched it all my life. And the churchmen want to quibble and put up this nonsense of congratulations and honor to them in the face of such evil? And you think I'm going to be silent about them, churchmen? I will not be. They are wolves parading in sheep's clothing, plain and simple. This is the usual peace, peace that we've gotten from churchmen for decades in this country. This young minister is an example of the weak, worthless churchmen who fill America's pulpits. He knows nothing of warfare. He neutralizes Christians from the needed confrontation and fight with evil. He aids and abets evil men. Why would I congratulate someone who wants to murder as many preborn babies as possible? Who upholds and promotes the evil of sodomy and transgenderism? Who wants to disarm us? Who wants socialism to prevail? Who denigrates family government and believes the state has the right to invade our domestic affairs at all levels within our homes? Why would I congratulate someone like that? And then you know what the next thing they do is? They quote Romans 13, and you all better submit. Which I'm getting to in a moment. This young churchman is a weak groveling, smarmy individual, and he is precisely so because of his Christian forebears, the generation that went before him, my generation, overwhelmingly failed, pursued wealth and ease and softness rather than doing what is needed and necessary. An example of the failure of my generation would be Robert Jeffress. Pastor Robert Jeffress put out an editorial yesterday, a man from my generation. His commentary sat prominent on the Fox News website all day yesterday. He titled his commentary, Biden is President-Elect. Living the fiction, how should Christians respond? And here's what he said in part in his editorial. He said, quote, The fact that God has established authorities means that by obeying the government, we obey God. Unquote. You know how evil that is? You know how wrong that is? You know how much tyrants love that kind of talk from a churchman? He then quotes Romans 13. Surprise, surprise. Jeffress is teaching a great lie by America's churchmen, that the Bible teaches complete submission to the civil government authorities. And of course, Scripture teaches nothing of the sort. In fact, Scripture teaches us to rebuke tyrants and to obey God rather than man when the civil authority contradicts the law or word of God and obey God rather than the state. This is the usual peace, peace, when there is no peace from the American churchmen. We've gotten it for decades now. And it's disgusting. And it's destroying America. It's destroying the church. It's allowing evil to strengthen. And still they go on. They can't see it. They can't hear the hooves of the Assyrians pounding outside the gates, approaching. They're that dumb. They're that deluded. 
They've imbibed upon a false Christianity for so many years they can't even see right anymore. Their discernment is zero. He goes on to say here, Paul also told us to pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. I can assure you Pastor Jeffries does not have impregatory prayer in mind here. He then said, here is our chance to show that Christians are not hypocrites. Oh, my word. I do a whole sermon just on that. (laughs) He goes on and says, we serve a God who remains on his throne, sovereignly reigning over every square inch of his vast universe. We serve a God who loves us and will never leave or forsake us. And now we have the chance to show the consistency and constancy of our Christian witness to the world by blessing Biden, submitting to Biden. That's how we're going to show the world. Meanwhile, the world's crying out for people to take a stand against evil. The Christians have joined with the evil rulers. What are the people going to think of Christianity and Christ? Huh? Use your heads! Look at the wickedness! This isn't the first time this has happened in history. This has happened time and time again. Do you really think our duty in the face of a righteous magistrate is exactly the same in the face of a wicked, evil magistrate as Jeffress asserts here? No, it is not the same. When a magistrate does evil, we are to rebuke him and call him to repentance. We are to declare the law and word of the Lord and call him to account. That is our duty. Not just release these flowery words about congratulations and blessing and honor and submission. He concludes in his commentary by saying, quote, if President Biden succeeds, we all succeed. And then he says, may God bless Joe Biden and may God bless the United States of America. Why should God bless the United States of America? All the innocent blood we have in this nation, the pervert, our laws contrary to his laws. I don't call for him to... I call for him to have mercy, and whether the mercy is that righteous men come into leadership or that we need persecution and judgment, whatever it takes, let that come forth. But he says, if President Biden succeeds, we all succeed. May God bless Joe Biden. So there you have it. American churchmen congratulating and blessing evil men. I guess we should just bless Biden so we are blessed. So we can succeed. Let's bless him. Do you see the twisted thinking of American Christianity? And this is an example of why the younger minister knows nothing of warfare. My generation has not done warfare with evil and with wicked men. They have not demonstrated fealty to Christ. So the younger generation does worse not just indifferent to the evil, they aid and strengthen the evil. I am sickened by how many young Christian ministers in our day have embraced leftist ideology and then they sell it under the guise of Christianity. We must teach the young Christians how to war. I have seen so many, even within homeschooling circles, who want to keep their kids safe from the world. Well, we want to... I don't even know what the word is. They use it all the time. I don't use it. 
want to protect their kids from the world. From the very beginning, me and Clara took our kids with us into the world. (laughs) Out on the streets, at the universities, the halls of the legislature, the halls of the judiciary, we let them confront wicked men. See mom and dad speak with wicked men, get persecuted by wicked men. Let them get the smell of battle in their nostrils. It's amazingly important to do. Not protect them from the culture and we keep them home. As you know, we are all for homeschooling, but that is a mistake the homeschoolers have made. Trying to keep their kids like the church has been for decades in this little ivory tower off to the side of the culture. Take your children to the streets. Take them to the institutions of education. Take them to the halls of the legislature and the judiciary. Teach them to fight. Teach them to fight. Take them down to the death camp where they murder the innocent. American Christianity is effeminate. I got this book this week in the mail, Masculine Christianity by Zachary M. Garris. What I've read so far, it's excellent. If you want to get it. Zachary Garris, Masculine Christianity. In this work, he writes about what churchmen and Christians have been writing about for decades now, and that is the effeminate state of American Christian males for a hundred years now, churchmen and Christians have been writing on this topic. And not only churchmen and Christians have been writing on this topic, but demographers and sociologists have been writing on this topic for a hundred years. Because it's that bad and it's that noticeable. We live in a culture that is run by women and weak males. We live in a culture that wants to effeminize men and turn them into women. And the American church aids and abets it all. God is judging this form of Christianity. It must be removed. It is incapable of reforming itself. So God will bring persecution and judgment to reform the American church. It will be replaced. This form of Christianity will be replaced by a tougher, more biblical form of Christianity. It will be. Because God is bringing his persecution and judgment upon us. It's already been here. It's going to strengthen. I have people ask me all the time, how do we cure the pietism of American Christianity? I tell them there's only one cure, persecution and judgment. It's a form of Christianity that thinks it's so smart and is so smug, it's incapable of reforming itself. Christ will reform his bride. He will purify his bride. And historically and biblically, we know he uses judgment and persecution to do it. And it will be no different here in America. God does not fly an American flag up in his throne room. Now let's continue on here in verse 3. It talks about who these pagan peoples are. Verse 3, namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath, and they were left that he, God, might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, 
the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons. And they served their gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Just as the Lord feared would happen, they rebel against the Lord's rule and follow after the pagan gods. So God brings his judgment. Look at verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim. Eight years they served him. So this persecution and judgment lasted for eight years. And then the children of Israel cry out to the Lord. Verse 9. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Repentance, humility, and purity matters when you want to do warfare for the Lord. Repentance, humility, and purity matters when you want to do warfare for the Lord. They had suffered under the persecution and judgment of God for eight years. You'll notice as time goes on, they need many more years of suffering and persecution before they repent again. God brings his deliverance. They live for him properly for a time, and then they go back into their evil and wickedness. And if you read history, you see this time and time again. You read scripture, you see it time and time again, of course. It says in verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, which isn't the easiest name to pronounce. Notice the Spirit comes upon Othniel. That would be God's Holy Spirit came upon him to do warfare. You know his Holy Spirit resides within us, right? As believers. It's in us to do war. When we see the ravages and evil of sin and what it does to our fellow man, we want to declare the truth of God's word, call them to repentance of their sin and faith in Christ. Amen? As his ambassadors, when we see his law and word being impugned by the magistrates, it's in us to fight. The Holy Spirit is in us. No, we can't just be indifferent to that. We must confront it. We must speak for our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. But not the ministers of our day. They give you all the reasons to stay home and be meek, mild, and like a piece of milk toast. Go along with everything. Just live your insignificant life. Put your money in my offering plate. Come to my dopey building. Get on my religious hamster wheel to nowhere. I'll keep you busy all day with a flurry of activities that mean nothing. Just don't do what's needed and necessary in the earth and what God has called us to. They're despicable. So this, the Holy Spirit of God comes upon Othniel and he wars for the Lord. And we, brothers and sisters, are in a war. 
a war for the souls of men. We must boldly declare God's law, word, and gospel. We must confront the idols, evils, and tyrants of our day. Our sword is his word. Ephesians tells us this. We take it to the nations. His kingdom is a conquering kingdom. It isn't this little sideshow of a hovel that American Christianity and Western Christianity has made it into. This little sideshow of insignificance. His kingdom conquers in the earth. We know that is so. He said to us in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, our Lord said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. We make him known in the earth, brothers and sisters. May we live in obedience to our Lord. May Christ be praised. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank and we praise you for this time that we've had in your word. And we ask that you would use it for good, that it's always been in you, O Lord that you are a man of war, that you war in the earth, that you've always been concerned about the souls of men, whether Old Testament or New Testament, that you've always wanted your people to be involved in the effort to win men to yourself. Lord, we beg your forgiveness for our generation, for my generation, O God, how the pursuit has been wealth, ease, telling the children, go get a college degree and make a lot of money. Lord, you see how wrong my generation was, how wrong we were, and what we've transferred to the younger generation, and now to even the younger generation. We see it, O God, for the wrong that it is, for the evil that it is, and the consequences that it has in the earth. Lord, open the eyes of your people. May they see what is going on. May they be true to you. May they not aid and abet evil magistrates and wicked men and unbiblical ideologies. Lord, we just ask and pray that we would live faithful to you with the days you've given us, regardless what it may be. May we boldly step forward and confront the idols, evils, and tyrants of our day by the power of your Holy Spirit. And as we speak, O God, may your Holy Spirit convict the hearers of sin, righteousness, and judgment. May they see their need for your Son, Jesus Christ. May they understand the goodness of your government, of your rule in the earth. Praise you, O God. Praise you, O God. We rejoice in you, O Lord, and we look to you for these things. We look to you for these things. And whatever your will may be, O God, may we live faithful and true to you in the midst of it all. A bright light in a dark nation. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.